Chapter Twenty Nine of the Princess Galva by David Whitelaw. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A recording by Marianne. Chapter Twenty Nine, Bloomsbury. Edward entered the little vestibule of the select Bloomsbury Hotel, and crossing to the office window, behind which sat a sleepy-looking bookkeeper, asked for an envelope. Then, taking a card from his pocket, he scribbled a few words on it. And enclosing it, requested that it be taken up to Mrs. Povey. A few minutes later, he was following an attendant up the broad flight of carpeted stairs. It was then five minutes past ten by the clock, which stood ticking sonorously in a corner of the landing. At twenty minutes to eleven, Edward Povey descended the stairs and, walking quickly through the vestibule, emerged into Russell Square. There were but a few people about. And no one seemed to notice the little figure which stood in indecision on the curb. Even had they done so, it would have taken a student of human physiognomy of no mean order to read what was written on Edward's face. Some would have said that there was an expression of sorrow behind the eyes; others would have imagined a suggestion of a smile at the corners of the mouth, and on the whole countenance a look of joyful relief. For some moments he stood. Gazing out across the road at the lights of the Hotel Russell, and at the cabs and taxis that were drawing up before it, then he turned with a little sigh and made his way down Southampton Road and along past the museum into the glare of light at the end of the Tottenham Court Road. Here, the sight of the restaurants reminded him that it was midday when he had taken his last meal. With a thought, he crossed the road and walked up Oxford Street to Frascetti's. The supper crush in the great circular room had well begun, but Edward was fortunate in finding a little table near the orchestra, and he prepared to order himself a meal in keeping with his feelings of the moment: some soup, a couple of kidneys, a Kirsch omelet, and a small bottle of hock. He ate slowly and in a lazy contentment. At intervals, his face changed its expression, now frowning slightly, now smiling. He asked the waiter who served him with his coffee to bring him writing materials, and pushed a clear space among the plates and glasses on the table. For perhaps ten minutes, he sat deep in thought, staring at the blotter, keeping time absently to a ragtime melody the little band had struck up by tapping his pen on the inkstand. Then he squared his shoulders, finished his coffee at a gulp, and wrote, "My dear Charlotte." I have been thinking things over, and I am willing to admit that I am not, after all, wholly surprised at the reception you gave me when I called on you this evening. But I may also say that, knowing you as I do, I was not prepared for the manner in which you acted. It appears to me that you might, perhaps, had you thought, chosen your expressions better. You could have been quite as effective had you been a little less vulgar. And you could have couched your suspicions of me in a less offensive manner, but let it pass. I can only surmise that the life of ease that you have been living for the past few months has entirely unfitted you for the management and duties of a home. I take it also that what you are pleased to term my desertion of you, accompanied as it was by ample provision for your wants, has not been distasteful to you. Perhaps you are right that we had better continue to live apart. I am afraid that the future would hold many little rifts. Personally, I have led a larger, fuller life since I left England, and have seen many adventures, 
You would be surprised to hear that I still have a bullet in my back, which I will carry to my grave. Yes, I am afraid our former existence would irritate me beyond measure. Your allowance will be paid to you as formerly. You need have no compunction in taking the money. It was fairly earned by bringing to a successful issue a difficult and delicate affair of business. Again, there would always be friction between us on account of our several acquaintances. I have mixed with the highest in the land, and could never tolerate the state of intimacy you tell me you are in with Uncle Jasper, a man I never pretended that I had the least affection for. He is a low fellow, and you know what I think of your Aunt Eliza. And so, Charlotte, as we go our own ways, the suggestion I made to-night that we should meet each anniversary of our wedding day and dine together, I consider a good one. This will be a standing appointment, under the clock at Charing Cross Station, at seven, each third of May. I am glad to think that we remain friends. I am, dear Charlotte, your affectionate husband, Edward. Povey posted this letter at the office in Oxford Street, afterwards taking a cab to Victoria. Here he reclaimed his personal luggage, and had it conveyed into the Grosvenor, in which excellent hotel he engaged a modest apartment. The taxicab which Edward had seen leave the courtyard of the station, and which contained Anna Paluda, bowled merrily up Victoria Street, across Trafalgar Square, and so on to Gower Street, turning off into a narrow and somewhat dingy thoroughfare which ran behind the museum. At number nine, Dorrington Street, the cab drew up, and Anna alighted. The driver had not particularly noticed the fare who had engaged him, or he would have seen a vast difference in the woman who now tendered him a shilling and half a crown to the one who had entered his cab at Victoria. The white hair which was so strong and noticeable a feature in the personality of Anna Paluda was now entirely covered up by a well-made wig of black-brown, drawn down over the ears, and a pair of slightly smoked spectacles hid the piercing black eyes. But a heavy veil made this alteration in the appearance of the lady very slight to the casual observer, and the chauffeur noticed nothing as, touching his cap, he restarted his car, leaving Anna standing on the pavement, her jewel-case and handbag in her hands, looking up at number nine. It was a cheerless enough sight, dingy in the extreme, and the woman wondered that the fastidious Gabriel Dasso should have chosen such a habitation. But it was an admirable hiding-place, and doubtless the ex-dictator had only intended that it should be a temporary one. Who would think of looking for the dilettante fugitive among these sordid surroundings? A few stone steps flanked by broken iron railings led up to a faded and blistered street door that once had been green. The brass numeral under the knocker was hanging by one screw, and had fallen round so that it might well have been six as nine. As Anna ascended the steps, she caught a glimpse of a dirty area in which the street lamp showed a littered profusion of bottles and jars. On a spike of one of the railings hung a tarnished and battered milk can. There was a semicircular fanlight over the door, through the grimy panes of which a gas-jet, innocent of globe, gave a dull glow. A light also showed beneath the blinds of the windows, flanking the doorstep. In the room within, someone was thumping out a dismal melody on a cracked pianoforte. The woman waited a moment to compose herself, then reached out and pulled the bell-handle. There was a jangle of wires, and somewhere at the back of the house a bell tinkled. The musician stopped in the middle of a bar, and there was silence for a few moments, 
Then she heard a door opened, and a shrill feminine voice shouted, Liz! Shuffling footsteps approached the door, a chain was unfastened, and the catch pulled back. Framed in the aperture stood a servant girl, small in stature, and of a dirtiness unbelievable. This, presumably, was Liz. I see you have a card in the window. Rooms, eh, mum? Come inside, will yer? The small domestic stood aside to allow Anna to pass into the hall, then carefully wiping her hands on a torn square of coarse sacking which constituted her apron, Liz tapped at a door, and, pushing it open, motioned the visitor to walk in. Anna Paluta did so, and found herself in the apartment that contained the piano. The room showed traces of a glory that had long departed. The furniture for the most part had been good, and was of that peculiar comfortless family of horsehair mahogany with which the mid-Victorian epoch was blessed. There were a few pictures on the wall, one or two of which looked as though they might prove valuable could one penetrate beneath the grime with which they were covered. There was an oval table in the centre of the room, from which the cloth had evidently been hurriedly cleared at the visitor's ring. Anna could see its crumpled dirtiness peeping from a drawer in the sideboard into which it had been hurriedly thrust. Glimpses of crockery showed beneath the shabby sofa, and over all was the same objectionable odour of meals which Anna had noticed even in the hall. The person who rose from an armchair by the fire and advanced a little to meet her fitted the room to a nicety. She, too, was mid-Victorian, and, like her surroundings, had once been handsome. Her faded tea-gown was trimmed with still more faded lace, and faded ribbons knotted wearily in her faded cap. Her face was pale and thin and worn, but there was a little smile which came into her pale blue eyes as she guessed Anna's errand. "'You have come about a room, madam?' Anna nodded. "'Yes, for a few weeks. Just a bed-sitting-room. I want to be quiet. By the way, have you many other lodgers?' Two, madam.' a lady on this floor, pointing to the folding doors, and a gentleman on the floor above. It is the room behind his that you can have, or one above it in the front. I think the back would suit me. The traffic at night cannot keep me awake there. Is the gentleman of quiet habits? Quite. Mr. Gabriel is a foreigner, but he is most regular in all his habits. He is home all day, reading, and he goes out in the evening. He comes in late, but we never hear him. Anna followed the faded landlady up the creaking stairs, and gazed round as the woman held the candle up for her survey of the room. She did not take much notice of the furniture. The room seemed airy and clean, and she agreed to the price named without demur, forestalling the request for references which she saw trembling on the lady's lips by paying rent for a month in advance. As she removed her bonnet and cloak, she asked that a cup of tea might be served to her in her room, this, in due course, was brought up by Liz, whose appearance had undergone a slight change for the better. The new lodger made friends at once with the little maid of all work, seeing in her a possible ally of the future, and, without directly asking questions, she managed to get Liz to talk, and from her she soon learnt some of the ways of her fellow lodger. She discovered that Mr. Gabriel left the house about eight to half-past each evening. An awful swell, mum! puts on a clean shirt every blessed night, and has one of them smash hats. When he came in, the girl could not tell. They all went to bed and left his supper ready for him. Not much, only a basin of cold beef tea. Consomme, he calls it. 
In his room, I suppose. Lord love your mum, not im. He don't catch anybody in e's room when he goes out. He locks it up. I makes the bed and all that while e's there in the morning. After the girl had gone up to bed, Anna sat up reading until the chimes of some nearby church clock told the hour of midnight. All was silent in number nine, Dorrington Street. Outside, too, it was quiet. Only sometimes a hansom would rattle past in front of the house, its bells jingling and the horses' hoofs beating merrily upon the asphalt. The woman rose and looked out into the hall. On a bracket stood an evil-smelling oil lamp turned down low. Beside it a brass tray contained the basin of consomme and a dingy little metal cruet. There were two letters there also, addressed to Mr. Gabriel, and Anna took them up to examine them. They were in her hands when she started suddenly and put them back on the tray. There was the sound of a key being inserted in the street door below, and hastily slipping back into her room, Anna put out her light and closed the door. She heard the man come up the stairs and unlock his door and carry the tray into his room. Then a match was struck, and with a start Anna noticed a thin streak of light break out in the darkness of the wall beside her. She noticed then, for the first time, that the rooms, like those below, were separated by folding doors, but in the case of the first floor they had been fastened up, and on her side had been papered over and a heavy wardrobe placed against them. Eagerly Anna Paluta placed her eye to the crack of light beside the massive piece of furniture, but she could see nothing. She determined that when Dasso went out on the following evening, she would see what could be done to widen the crack in the papered door. End of chapter 29